Hello everyone and welcome to Witness Radio, the only show that doesn't care about ratings because our sole purpose is to save souls, on purpose. Today my guest is Mark Loy, one of the founders of Answers in Genesis. He's also the Vice President of Outreach here at the ministry. And Mark, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show and uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. And thank you, Ryan, and, and appreciate your heart for evangelism. And as you know, Answers in Genesis so well, if you just scratch us a little bit, you'll know underneath we're all about proclaiming the gospel. But uh, many people nowadays don't trust what the Bible says, including the gospel message, because they think that uh, the book of Genesis and the other books of the Bible are not uh, accurate or, or authoritative. So we thank you for, for your ministry. But uh, here at AIG, we are equipping Christians to uh, to defend the historicity of the book of Genesis, but all of the Bible. It just so happens that most of the attacks on the reliability of the Bible are directed at the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, we're also, as I said, very evangelistic. So as people come through our creation museum, yes, they'll get evidence that confirms what the Bible says about events of history, uh, but we also present the gospel. And I'm privileged as, as one of the founders to help build the creation museum. I also oversee our different uh, seminars that we hold all over the country. In fact, as you're uh, going to be airing this, we'll have just concluded one of our large conferences in, in California. We do about 300 teaching events outside of these four walls uh, every year. I also help produce the radio program uh, Answers uh, with Ken Ham, produce the newsletter, and uh, a number of things, including dealing with the media, as I am right now. Very good. Yeah, I... I didn't realize that we did so many conferences and everything outside of the museum. You know, I knew that we have regular conferences right here inside uh, the Creation Museum, uh, typically in Legacy Hall. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about the the Answers Mega Conference that just happened. Yeah, in addition to the events that we hold here, including the famous Bill Nye-Ken Ham debate uh, back in February in our 1,000-seat auditorium, we do women's conferences here, pastors' meetings, even banquets, weddings. So there's a lot happening here on site at the Creation Museum. But uh, worldwide, uh, we'll be, uh, for example, next month, uh, a major seminar in England. We already have 1,000 people pre-registered. Now, by English standards, that's a huge conference. And then we're doing a seminar in uh, Peru uh, in, in the fall. So there's many events uh, occurring in the United States, but also uh, abroad. The conference that uh, we just uh, finished in California, our Answers Mega Conference, we flew in speakers from around the world to uh, go into depth uh, with uh, evidence that confirms the book of Genesis. Most of our seminars are just of a few hours in length, maybe four hours at a church on a Saturday, Sunday, or a Sunday, Monday. But the mega conference is four to five hours of intensive teaching. It's for those uh, folks who want to go more in depth uh, to discover the evidence that confirms the book of Genesis and also refutes evolution. The refuting evolution part is it's a part of what we do. It's not the main thing we do because we have a very uh, pro-Genesis message here. We're a very positive message. Yes, we do knock down the evolution belief system, but 
uh, we replace it with the very positive message that the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, and therefore the gospel message is true. But refuting evolution was important for me because I was an evolutionist growing up uh, as a product of the schools in Los Angeles, going to the science museums in, in L.A. and watching National Geographic television specials. Uh, I was an evolutionist. That's all I'd been taught, and it seemed logical. It, the teacher seemed very authoritative until I used, started to use my critical thinking skills when I was about 17 or 18 and questioned what I'd been taught in school about evolution. And it was an important uh, period for me because I was starting to have something of a crisis of faith. I was a relatively new Christian, but then I'm reading the book of Genesis and it seems to be in total conflict with what I'm learning in my public school on television and, and visiting the, the museum. So I was wondering, you know, yes, I'm a Christian, but can I really trust God's word uh, starting in Genesis? And so I, I, I started investigating this. Dr. Dwayne Gish, the famous creationist debater, came and spoke at our school in, uh, in, Los, in the Los Angeles area. And his one-hour talk just revolutionized my thinking about the question of origins. Where did I ultimately come from? And so um, I became a, a Bible-believing creationist when I was about uh, 18. And because I've seen so many young people growing up in our churches that uh, have not been equipped to deal with some of the anti-biblical attacks of the day, uh, creation, evolution, dinosaurs, why does God allow death and suffering? Because churches haven't been equipping their people, especially young people who are just evolutionized in their schools and, and through the media, uh, they're leaving the church because they think the Bible is not reliable. And uh, I have that passion now to equip young people to have answers that defend the book of Genesis because too many of our young people are walking away because they think the Bible is either irrelevant, uh, full of mistakes, and we may never see them again in a church. Right. And another one is they think that it's just a book of fairy tales. You know, like uh, Ken Ham talked about, you know, we send them to Sunday school where they hear a story, you know, and then when Monday through Friday they go to school to hear the, the facts, you know, and we need to uh, focus on, you know, one of the things we need to do is to stop using the term stories to talk about the biblical accounts that have happened in the Bible because they aren't stories, they're, they're true. Yeah, they're historical accounts. And so I, I do cringe when, when people talk about the story of Noah and the ark. I cringe even more when I might walk into a Sunday school class and they've got this cartoonish ark drawn on the wall, you know, with the giraffes sticking their heads out the uh, out of the windows, making it look like it is just a fable or a story. And, and those types of messages you're sending to young people are, are not good ones. It could, my, could make them think, well, this account of Noah and the ark and, and Jonah and, and the great fish, I mean, are they true? I mean, science would say that they're not. Maybe the Bible is just a book of stories, and, and it's just like any other religious book that uh, we don't necessarily have to accept as as uh, as written. So yes, we we say that the uh, Book of Genesis is a historical account of origins, where we all come from. So we we really steer clear from that word story. So now you brought up you know the the as we call it here at the uh, museum, it's the the bathtub ark. Uh, and I know that we have a new 
uh, project uh, in the works, the Ark Encounter. What's going on with that? Uh, any major updates or anything like that? Yes, we're coming very close to announcing the actual uh, construction of the Ark. It's been held up by more than a, a year because of some permit permits we've had to uh, secure. But the Ark Encounter uh, is is a themed attraction that will be 40 miles from our Creation Museum. Uh, the Ark Encounter will feature a full-size Noah's Ark over 500 feet long. It will be built uh, along Interstate 75 uh, between uh, Cincinnati, Ohio and Lexington, Kentucky, right off of exit 154. It's a great exit there, just very convenient. 800 acres we have purchased. We've designed the ark. We've submitted all the necessary uh, permits and paid for those. And uh, we hope very soon to say that excavation and construction will start soon. Most of the money has already been raised for this project. And so it's just a matter now of getting that final permit and then uh, starting construction and, Lord willing, uh, open in the summer of 2016. This ark will be not just some kind of you know frivolous tourist attraction it's all about evangelism just as our creation museum is about sharing our faith because the ark after all was a a vessel of salvation for noah and his family and and the animals and uh, we will segue from that to present christ as our modern day ark of salvation yes we'll have plenty of exhibits and and wonderful uh, high-tech uh, displays, uh, animatronic uh, creatures, and so it'll be a fun experience, but uh, the most important thing is that people leave with an understanding that, that if they're not Christians, uh, that they're they're lost and in need of, of salvation. And uh, we will have some scientific exhibits there that will answer the questions like, how in the world was it possible to Noah, for Noah and his family to build such a large vessel? Where did all the water come from to cover the earth during the flood? How did uh, Noah bring all the animals on board and, and then take care of them? There's a series of, you know, 20 or more questions that, you know, even the non-Christian might have about the validity of the uh, flood account in the, in the book of Genesis. So we'll deal with those questions and deal with them with science and scripture. And then once we have satisfied the people with solid answers, we hope they'll be open to the, uh, to the gospel message. And for the, for the Christians who come to the Ark Encounter, we hope then we'll be able to equip them with answers that will help them defend their faith, be more bold in their, in their witnessing. Praise the Lord for that. That sounds like a, a wonderful attraction. Now, is that, is that going to be it? Just just the ark with all the all the stuff inside, or is there going to be more to it? I mean, you've got eight hundred acres, you said. Yeah, the ark will be the centerpiece of of the ark encounter. Not surprisingly, uh, this is phase one that we op will will be opening. It's about seventy three million dollars, and that includes um, you know the ark, but you know restaurants, uh, a, a zoo uh, nearby, a small zoo, because we'll have a parade of animals. Uh, they go into the ark, and then out of the ark, and back into their into their petting zoo, and uh, massive amount of parking, and uh, yeah, some people wonder why you need 800 acres for a themed attraction, but uh, two reasons: one, you want to create a buffer uh, with your neighbors because you don't want something that's so contrary to the ark encounter message that might be right next door. You want to create some space between us and perhaps some future neighbors. But also the terrain is, is gorgeous here, but it is kind of rolling hills. Uh, 
And so out of that 800 acres, I would say at least 200 of it is usable, meaning that it's relatively flat and you don't have to move a lot of dirt. And uh, this is first phase. There will be uh, several uh, other attractions that will come to the park if the ARC encounter, the, if the uh, full-size ARC is successful in drawing a certain number of people that will give us the income to continue to build on the park, yes, there should be several additions over, over the years, hence another reason we need about 800 acres. That's neat. So now with the ARC encounter, you guys are putting a lot of time and effort into that. What about the Creation Museum? Is that going to go by the wayside, or what, what's going on with, the, with that? Oh, the best years for the Creation Museum are, are ahead of it. Uh, number one, when uh, uh, people come to the Ark Encounter, and we believe 1.6 million people a year is not an unreasonable figure. Uh, and we, we've, we're planning on adequate enough parking to handle, let's say, on a Saturday in July, which could be the biggest uh, biggest day of the, uh, uh, of the entire year, you have to have adequate parking. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so we've planned accordingly for uh, for that. But meanwhile, uh, with 1.6 million people coming to the ARC encounter in the first year, it's very possible that at least 15% of those people will come visit the Creation Museum. That's going to be a few hundred thousand people additional coming to the museum. So we're already master planning the Creation Museum campus here where we're doing this interview for additional parking, uh, we'll have to add some extra exhibits because even right now, uh, uh, when you have 3,000 people in the museum, which we should have on Saturday, that's our projection, that's a lot of folks here. Now imagine two or three years from now when the ARC is open, there could be 5,000 people here on some Saturdays. We, we're Right now we're not equipped for that, but we're planning for additional things to go outside uh, the museum, extra parking, add some exhibits. Uh, inside the museum. Uh, we already have that, as I mentioned, a thousand seat auditorium so we can do more meetings in there during the day to help, you know, uh, spread out the crowd. And so uh, the Creation Museum has had fantastic attendance uh, uh, this year. I think part of it is the, the Bill Nye debate that was watched by several million people around the world. Um, children are free for this year with a paying adult. That's added a few um, uh, people. We've done some additional marketing throughout the Cincinnati area. You'll see some new billboards going up soon with dinosaurs on them. So there's a, there's a number of things that have uh, seen an increase in attendance. And the economy is getting better, too. And so uh, people have uh, more, uh, uh, you know, more discretionary income to, uh, to drive out here and, and, and tour the museum. So I wouldn't be surprised that... Uh, on some Saturdays in July, a few years from now with the ARC open, we could have 5,000 people here on a, on a single day. So the museum is doing well, and we anticipate it'll be even better when the ARC opens. That's great. I'm glad to hear that you, know, you guys are still thinking about the museum and not you know, thinking only of the ARC. You know, a lot of times people can forget their first project when they start a new project. So that's good that you guys are still trying to incorporate the, the museum in everything that you're doing because it has been such a great ministry uh, here in Petersburg, Kentucky. I you know I work in security, so I see people coming through all the time. I see all, all walks of life coming through, and they're getting the answers to their questions just by walking through the museum. And now, 
we've got all different kinds of exhibits and everything here. What what would you say is is your favorite exhibit? You know, I was just thinking about that yesterday. Um, you know, I'm asked by media from time to time what personally do I see as the most important uh, exhibit, and it's not really an exhibit. It's a it's a film called The Last Adam. Christ is described in in the, in the Bible as the 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 last Adam as opposed to, you know, Adam of Adam and Eve fame. And everything in the museum really points to that theater, a 15-minute film on the life of Christ and how the book of Genesis connects to why Christ came to earth 2,000, 2000 years ago. So that film ties it all up, and it's very, very evangelistic, very well done, uh, even by, by Hollywood standards. So when people come to visit the Creation Museum, yes, they'll enjoy the animatronic dinosaurs that move realistically, uh, a state-of-the-art planetarium, as, as fine as any planetarium you'll, you'll see in the Midwest. And uh, as they go to our special effects theater where fun things happen right there at the seats, uh, but uh, in my mind, um, the, mo the most poignant and the most important part of the Creation Museum is where we present the gospel in the Last Adam Theater. That's wonderful. So now, I know that uh, just in the past two years that I've been with the museum or with the ministry, uh, you guys have added uh, a number of different attractions here, a number of different uh, exhibits, new exhibits. What are some of those and, and uh do you think people are, are enjoying those? Do you think that's been a big attraction to get more people here? Yes, and, you know, I mentioned just a few minutes ago uh, some of the reasons the attendance has been so strong this year. One thing I did forget to mention is that people are coming here to see our new Allosaur. And Allosaur is, uh, is a is a dinosaur that looks somewhat like a T-Rex, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And we have a skeleton here that's uh, uh, more than 50% complete. It, the skull of this uh, creature, uh, three feet long uh, with several sharp teeth, we have 97% of the skull here. It is a world-class dinosaur exhibit in and of itself. So when we add new exhibits like that, we see renewed interest in the museum. The media cover it, but the lifeblood of the Creation Museum has been repeat visitors. When they hear, when they've been here, they almost always have a, a wonderful experience, you know, a, a faith-strengthening experience. And so if they're living in Chicago, let's say, and they hear about a new exhibit at the museum, like an allosaur, they might come down here for for the weekend. Before we opened the museum seven years ago, someone gave us some very wise advice, and they said, don't let your museum go stagnant or stale. Successful zoos, successful museums are those that add things every year. Now, even, even amusement parks, you know, will add roller coasters because that will bring back repeat visitors, or it might intrigue someone who has never been to that attraction to to come take a look at what's what's new and so you'll have noticed since you've been here uh two years on staff we have a world-class insect exhibit and it, it truly is one of the best in the in the world in terms of quality it would rival the smithsonian institution's bug collection uh it's not as large but the the quality is is there and then every six months we put in a new set of um, uh, rare bible manuscripts on display our friends at the Museum of the Bible, which is going to be in, cons in construction soon in Washington, D.C., um, this is the Hobby Lobby family. The Green family are building this large uh, Bible museum, 
and they've collected some wonderful um, uh, Bibles already, and they're kind enough to loan us about 20 to 25 uh, rare Bibles that we put on display, and then uh, six months down the road, we'll put another uh, uh, set of Bibles. You know, Elvis Presley's personal Bible was here on display uh, last year. So all to say, we try to keep this museum fresh, and you'll see even more. You'll see more things over the next two years, as even the ark is being built 40 miles down the road. You might have noticed, of course, the zip lines. We have the largest zip line course in the Midwest. 27 lines that go through our 70 acres here. That's attracting a number of people too. And the zip line will attract a lot of non-Christians who are of the adventurous type. And guess what? We give them a, a very substantial discount to come inside the Creation Museum where we want to expose them to biblical truths, uh, the gospel most of all. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've actually done the zip line and that that's a lot of fun. So let's move on to what everybody wants to know answers to some of the most asked questions and some of the uh, common objections that you guys face day to day from atheists and evolutionists what are what are some of these questions and, and what are more importantly what are the answers to those questions I'm not a scientist. I'm not a theologian, so I can't give you deep answers to uh, to questions about dinosaurs or carbon dating and topics like that. But you're right. Uh, if we go on talk show programs, and, and Ken Ham is on there frequently, and they open up the phone lines uh, to uh, to callers, the same questions pop up time and time again. You can almost write them down ahead of time. And that's why those types of questions... Uh, are addressed in our museum because we know what people are asking and we've known that for years and years and so we address them in the museum from Cain's wife to carbon dating and so on and that's why we have a book called the answers book uh, the 27 most asked questions that people ask about the accuracy of the book of Genesis and so the, the questions usually uh, maybe the first question could be don't dinosaurs disprove creation don't dinosaurs somehow prove evolution? In fact, dinosaurs are probably used by evolutionists more than any other topic to try to convince people of the evolutionary uh, belief that that uh, we've evolved over millions and millions of years, that dinosaurs perished 65 million years ago before uh, man appeared on the, on the scenes. Dinosaurs are almost like the icon of, uh, of the evolutionists and that's clearly on display when you go to natural history museums like the uh, the large museum in Chicago the, the field museum some very impressive dinosaur skeletons but they're always presented in an evolutionary context and science textbooks use dinosaurs so here at the creation museum and through our different outreaches we want to present the true history of the world and we use dinosaurs as our icon if you will and and it's done through animatronic dinosaurs and dinosaur bones and that allosaur uh, skeleton. We believe, and this is something that I didn't accept. I used to believe in the evolutionary story that humans evolved millions of years after the dinosaurs disappeared, until I started looking at the evidence for myself and just didn't, you know, just didn't accept things at uh, at, at face value. That uh, dinosaurs are are actually explained by the Bible, where they came from, what happened to them. Uh, we think they were on Noah's Ark, and we'll we'll show that uh, or depict that in the in the Ark encounter. But uh, somehow, well, not somehow, but very deliberately, evolutionists have used uh, dinosaurs to to try to convince children 
that uh, that these massive creatures died out in evolutionary uh, uh, history. Other questions that are similarly related uh, to the uh, to the age of the dinosaurs would be, you know, isn't the Earth millions or billions of years old? That question will pop up wherever we go. So we address that here, head on. And uh, we believe that. Let me give you one example here as we continue to talk about dinosaurs. Um, you know, a T-Rex bone was found in Montana, a Tyrannosaurus rex bone was found, that had soft tissue still in that creature and blood vessels. Now, that creature did not die out 65 million years ago. If you could open up the bone and, and, the, and the blood vessels are actually elastic, you can, you know, they kind of return to their position after you move them. Now, that creature was around relatively recently. That's powerful, compelling evidence that dinosaurs have been around uh, recently. Now, we're not going to use the word proof on this, but that and all sorts of other evidences suggest that dinosaurs have been here in, in the last few thousand years. And that includes drawings of them in South Africa or South America, uh, uh, petroglyphs uh, done by Indians in our west of dinosaur-like creatures looking like sauropods. We even have uh, dragon legends all over the world. Uh, including on the on the uh, flag of the country of Wales, you know, right next to England, it's a there's a dragon on there. It looks like a uh, a dinosaur, and so uh, I just encourage your listeners who have never been taught the other side of the story about dinosaurs to dig into it, and they'll find, I think, as I did when I was about 18 or so, that uh, the Book of Genesis actually explains the true history of our origins. And the, and the origins of all living things, and that the evolutionary view is bankrupt scientifically and fraught with problems, including the supposed dating methods that they use to say dinosaurs uh, lived over 65 million years ago. Uh, carbon dating, by the way, has nothing to do with dating things to millions of years. So even evolutionists will say that. Now, there are other dating methods that supposedly give old ages like rubidium, strontium, potassium, argon. But if you look at those dating methods, they're already have built into their equations long ages. You can't, that, that's how those things work. But if you use your critical thinking ability and study these dating methods, you'll find, as our scientists here uh, continually say, that uh, they're, they're totally uh, unreliable. Even carbon dating is not all that reliable, even though it dates back only thousands of years. And that's a good point at this time, Ryan, to say that we have several PhD scientists on our staff who have degrees from established universities like Brown University, which is an Ivy League school. And one of our scientists has a PhD in biology from there. We have a, uh, an astronomer with a doctorate degree. Um, a geologist, uh, an astronomer. So there's a lot of brain power right down the corridor from me here that help us to make sure that we're accurate in our science. But these are all Bible-believing Christians who say that when you study science, science confirms what the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis and elsewhere. That's awesome. I wanted to go back real quick to that uh, Tyrannosaurus bone that uh, was found in Montana that's got, you know, the blood vessels or whatever you were saying. Now, I'm not a scientist either, so this question may be totally uh, stupid. But um, with that, uh, do you think there's a possibility of them uh, taking that and uh, going into a lab and cloning dinosaurs, and then all of a sudden we've got Jurassic Park 2 running, running amok in 2014? 
I'll repeat, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not, uh, and I'm not even a theologian. I'm more of a bureaucrat here. But as I understand it, you can't clone an animal unless you have the egg of the female. And so without that, I don't think, because you have to insert into that egg of the female the, uh, the I guess you call it the DNA of, uh, of that, of that uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. So I think uh, Jurassic Park seems to be totally fictitious. Now, if you find a live dinosaur today, and who knows, it's possible. There's so many parts of Africa and Asia we've never, we've never seen. Even, there's even some stories from, from Africa of a large dinosaur-like creature called Makili Mamembe, I think it's called. And so um, we don't believe that necessarily the dinosaurs are extinct, but we don't have proof that, they, that they're alive today. But there's some, certainly some strong evidence they have been around in the last few hundred years. Wow, that's interesting. Well, let me move on to another question. Uh, a lot of people say that we're against evolution and they think we're uh, imbeciles. They think we're stupid because we don't believe in millions of years. One question is, why don't we believe in millions of years? And the second question is, how have you come to realize that we haven't been around for millions of years. I'm convinced that the earth and the universe are young first and foremost because that's what the Bible teaches. If you add up all the genealogies in the Old Testament and uh, and you know what Christ lived 2,000 uh, years ago, the time between the creation in Genesis to the time of Christ is 4,000 years. You really can't squeeze millions, much less billions of years into the into the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a historical document, and there are very specific uh, um, uh, ages given for characters. You know, from from Adam through Abraham. I mean, if if you if you look at Genesis one uh, to eleven, you see about two thousand years between Adam and Abraham. And then the rest of the Old Testament gives about 2,000 years from Adam to Christ. So the Old Testament takes place in 4,000 years. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what, what I accept. And as I indicated earlier, what do I do then with those dating methods that say that dinosaurs uh, died out 65 million years ago? And I just encourage listeners to, to go to our website and, and look at these dating methods. First, they, they might want to deal with carbon dating to see the... Uh, uh, see what creationists will, will argue there. And the other dating methods that uh, give those supposed all ages are all very questionable. And, um, and I, I can say with all confidence today, after studying this topic now for, oh my goodness, about 40 years, that science confirms what the Bible teaches in Genesis, that the earth and universe are young, and uh, that humans did not evolve from some ape-like ancestor. We were created uh, by God and created in his, uh, in his image, and I, and I rejoice in those teachings. So now, what about, uh, like, uh, Darwin's finches and, you know, bacteria uh, evolving into uh, different types of bacteria? Okay, now you're getting more into the deep science, and, and I, you know, you might want to interview someone like Dr. Georgia Purdom of our staff, who's written a lot on this subject of, uh, of antibiotic resistance uh, to certain drugs in hospitals, that this is supposedly uh, evolution. And I can't give you a, a, a cogent answer here as a, as a layperson other to say that uh, these uh, bacteria, these, uh, these um, problems in the, uh, 
in hospitals, they don't change into anything else. No genetic in information is added uh, that would create a different type of uh, uh, type of living thing. And um, I just direct people to go to our website of answersingenesis.org and type in words like uh, bacterial resistance, antibiotics, evolution, and you'll get an article or two from uh, from Dr. Georgia Purdom, who has a Ph.D. in molecular uh, genetics. But that, that argument is often brought up in letters to the editor and commentaries that why do creationists ignore this evidence of evolution occurring right before our eyes in hospitals as these bugs become, you know, they, they don't, uh, there's no resistance to, uh, to them. But um, uh, that's a, a tricky scientific and medical question, so that's why I'm going to defer people to our website of answers in genesis.org. And I like to use uh, Ray Comfort's approach with that uh, question, that uh, objection to our faith is, well, they started out as a bird, and then they became a bird. So there's actually no evolution. It's just adaptation. And we here at Answers in Genesis, we actually believe in adaptation, and it's not Darwinian's evolution. Yeah, and, and in fact, we believe in the idea of natural selection, which Darwin brought forward in his book. But natural selection you know, that's, you know, one creature uh, surviving to pass on their traits uh, to their to their offspring. But no new genetic information is added to, let's say, you know, the, the story now is that birds, or excuse me, dinosaurs evolved into birds. Now, for uh, a dinosaur limb, you know, a leg, to turn into a wing requires all sorts of new genetic information added to a creature. So... We don't see that anywhere in the fossil record. We don't see any half-limb, half-winged uh, uh, type of uh, creatures. Now, evolutionists like to posit things like Archaeopteryx and other things, but the bottom line is where does the new genetic information come from to turn a limb into a wing? Where does it come from? Natural selection preserves what's already there in the genetic background of that, uh, of that creature. And so it, natural selection does nothing to drive, you know, one creature becoming another because there's no new genetic information added. So you brought up a question uh, a while back about uh, Cain getting his wife. So the, the premise behind this question is Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and then later on it says Cain's wife. So if Adam and Eve were the first humans, where did Cain get his wife? That is one of the most asked questions we get here, and it's used by skeptics to try to uh, try to stump us that we don't have an answer, because they'll say, "Well, that means that Cain must have married his sister." You know, if the Bible says that Adam and Eve were the first two, and then they had children, somewhere along the way, children would have to marry each other. Now, there wasn't a problem with that back then. The law against incest or close intermarriage came in at the time of Moses, time of Exodus. And the reason there would be this prohibition of close relatives marrying had everything to do with what are called mutations in the genes, mistakes that all of us have in our genetic makeup. And if close relatives married, 
if I had the same mistake in my gene as a close relative, then our offspring might have some kind of a deformity. But Adam and Eve were created perfect, and their children were very close to perfection. So close relatives back in the time of the first chapters of Genesis could marry and not have a problem with their offspring having genetic uh, deformities because they were close to being you know, pure in terms of genetics. But over time, as the mutations built up in people's genetic makeup, close relatives marrying could create problems in their, uh, in their offspring with deformities and other things. So now what about the, uh, you know, you see in the Smithsonian and all the science books, you see these uh, depictions of, uh, for lack of a better term, ape men, you know, going from uh, the ape up to the man and all the, all the different uh, men or apes, whatever, in between. What do you guys have to say about that? Well, that was a big problem for me as a teen growing up. I thought, for example, that Neanderthal man, who unfortunately is still in some textbooks today and uh, and shouldn't, was um, uh, proof that we had evolved from an ape-like ancestor. See, Neanderthal man, the bones were found in, in Germany of, uh, of a skeleton that was kind of stooped over. And so evolutionists would say, well, this creature uh, looks human but is stooped over kind of hunched over, kind of like an ape. So it must have been halfway, roughly halfway between an, an ape and, and a human. And I accepted that as proof of, of evolution till I found out later that Neanderthal man was stooped over because he had a, a bone disease or a vitamin deficiency, some, something like that. I'm a little vague with the, with the science. But the more I studied these so-called ape men like Neanderthal man and then Lucy, which is probably the uh, exhibit A now that evolutionists use to try to s prove that we evolved from some ape-like uh, creature, which we dismiss here in our museum. We've got a wonderful display that refutes Lucy. The more I looked into these ape men, they were either all ape or all human and nothing, uh, nothing in between. And that's not what you'll hear uh, uh, in your cl typical science classroom or through the media or through uh, uh, certain museums. But, I, again, I encourage listeners, as, I, as I've done, I think, a couple of times now, use your critical thinking skills. There's often a second interpretation of the evidence. Evidence, you know, bones just don't speak in and of themselves. They have to be interpreted. And I think the best interpretation is using the Bible as my, uh, my eyeglasses, if you will. As I look at the evidence, I look, look at the evidence through biblical glasses and the evidence... Uh, is is consistent with what the Bible teaches about the origins of uh, of uh, humankind. I encourage our people, if they your people, if they have questions about these so-called ape men, they go to our website of AnswersInGenesis.org and they can type in some keywords like Lucy or Neanderthal or Homo erectus. Type that in there, you'll get some articles from some PhD scientists that I think will confirm them in their faith that. You know, we were created in the image of God, as Genesis 1 says, and not from some, uh, some ape-like uh, creature in our ancestry. So now you keep bringing up the, the website, AnswersInGenesis.org, and, and articles. These articles, are, are they written uh, by only scientists, and are they using all the big high-dollar words that nobody like me could understand? Or are there some articles on there that are more written for uh a layman or like myself? We are known as a layman ministry. And so the typical article on our website 
should be able to be understood by even a 15-year-old, maybe even some 12-year-olds. And we even have a children's section at AnswersInGenesis.org that uh, young people can access so they can learn these materials at their appropriate uh, age level. So most of our articles are written at a level that most people can understand. We do have technical articles that go more in depth about the uh, so-called fossil ape men. And then we even have um, a technical journal called the Answers Research Journal. It's for the scientist who wants to go more into depth into some topics. So yes, we have something on our website for young people, to the layperson, and to those who are more technically inclined. Okay, that's wonderful. So one more question before we finish up here. What about death and suffering? You, as a, as a Christian, say that God created the earth and it was perfect, but there's death and suffering. Where did the death and suffering come from, and why, why, why do you say that God created everything perfect when we have death and suffering? Since the 9-11 tragedy some 13 years ago, that may be, if it's not the most asked question we get here at the ministry, it might be number two or number three, and that is, if there's a God, if there's this all-powerful God, uh, why is there so much death and suffering in this world? Well, we go back to the Genesis, book of Genesis, where it was a perfect world until we had the rebellion of, of, of Adam and, and Eve into sin, and everything changed in the universe at that, at that point. And we had the entrance of, of death. I mean, it, in Genesis chapter 3, it said that Adam would eventually die. We have death and suffering in the world today because of the rebellion of humankind against a holy creator. Uh, we shouldn't be shaking our fist at him. We should be looking at our, at our own sin. And we, we see uh, death all around us. Even, in the, in, even we see beauty in the world today. We have remnants of that wonderful creation as we look at, uh, at just the, the, the wonderful handiwork of God uh, throughout, uh, throughout our, our, our planet. But death and suffering entered right there at Genesis chapter 3, 15. And we see animals killing each other. We have diseases like uh, cancer. These things did not exist in, in a perfect world. But thank goodness one day our world will be restored, as uh, the book of Revelation teaches. And uh, meanwhile, God has given us the mental capacity to deal with some of these horrible diseases like cancer. I've got a, a friend I was on the phone with just about 45 minutes ago who, uh, you know, years ago might have just passed away because of the lack of, uh, of uh, medical understanding of cancer and all the technologies that, uh, that are being, uh, being produced. So, um, yeah, death and suffering is, and cancer and diseases are a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So now, I know that was supposed to be the last question, but it made me think of one more, and this, I think, is going to be the most important what can someone do? Uh, you know, you talked about sin as a result of death and suffering. Uh, what can someone do? Uh, it sounds like the world is hopeless because of this, because of sin. What, 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 what are your words to, to people who are looking for hope? Well, for the non-Christian, this world is hopeless. If, if there's no meaning or purpose, in life that they're just an accident, an evolutionary accident in a universe that's billions of years old, I could see why a non-Christian would be struggling over, you know, what is what is the meaning and purpose in life. But for the Christian, we rejoice in a future hope of a restoration of the uh, of, uh, of all things and a, and a relationship with Christ that will last through uh, eternity. Uh, 
evolution is the scientific justification for people who wish that there is no God. And, but it's, it's just a worldview, and indeed in a, a religion, Ryan. It's a, it's a religion without meaning or purpose in life. And we're, we use this question of death and suffering to present the, uh, the gospel message of why Christ came uh, to earth to, uh, you know, he, all of us are still going to be sinners. Even when we become Christians, we're going to have uh, physical ailments. But if we have placed our trust in Christ, and we're going to spend eternity with him in a perfect place where we don't have death and suffering anymore, where everything will be in perfect uh, harmony. And that's the message that we present at the Creation Museum uh, through the Future Ark Encounter, through our website. Everything points to the, to the gospel. And as we answer these questions about death and suffering, dinosaurs, carbon dating, Cain's wife, people are more inclined to listen to what, uh, what's written in the, uh, in the New Testament of Christ coming to die for us and uh, raise again from the uh, from the dead. That's the hopeful message we present here, as opposed to the hopeless message that's presented in, in the secular world. Well, thank you again, Mark, for being on the show. Uh, real quick, uh, just give a, a quick recap of, of who you are, what you do for the ministry, and uh, where they can uh, find out more information. Uh, yes, they, uh, your listeners can go to AnswersInGenesis.org for a variety of uh, uh, answers to their, their questions. I'm privileged to be one of the founders with uh, Ken Ham and Mike Zobath of Answers in Genesis and our Creation Museum. And uh, part of my responsibilities include uh, outreach, overseeing the, uh, the different teaching seminars we do around the country and around the world, uh, help produce the radio program, the newsletter, and do a lot of work with uh, media. So a little bit of little bit of everything at Answers in Genesis. Well, thank you again. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And until next time, the fields are ripe for the harvest. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and share your faith. May God bless you.